Welcome to the Drive Time News Blast. 30 minutes, 45 for patrons. Of news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice, this is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. Our top story, not very interesting, but very significant, a, quote, a bipartisan group of senators reach infrastructure deal. And for me, bipartisan infrastructure should be an oxymoron. Ask Barack Obama. Republicans were totally against it. Trump got Republicans on board with it. It shouldn't even be a thing. Um, But what and it's really bad now because what they're doing is it's a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And if you look at it, they only break out the five hundred and fifty billion of what's called like extra spending. The other four fifty is what's called baseline spending. It's already kind of committed. They do revote on it, but it's already it's already committed to like roads and stuff. So this is extra on top of what they would normally spend. It's uh, only 10% of the whole thing, of the whole entire bill. Oh, I guess it's it's 20% of the additional spending is on additional roads and bridges and stuff. They are spending a big chunk of it on modernizing the electric grid. I'm guessing that they're going to put a bunch of backdoors in there or um, probably teeing it up for electric cars, which I'm sure is part of the road work. Yeah, guys. I heard them talking about it today. I heard one of the congressmen talking about it, how... It's going to modernize it, like you were saying, and how it's going to give a connection for the government with these companies because of cyber, because cyber attacks are the new war. We're not going to see bombs dropping on New York. We're going to see big corporations hacked. Therefore, big corporations must partner and work with the government and give them access to their infrastructure. Yeah, even the supply chain stuff we were talking about yesterday brought in that cyber element. We, I absolutely have to read that, watch that five hours of World Economic Forum stuff, Cyber Polygon from July 9th. I have to watch it because they are going to tell us what's coming, and I have to see that. Uh, in addition, this thing is going to have high-speed internet to rural areas, which I consider to be like a really a, a, a cultural attack. And a lot of the rest of the additional spending will be extra on trains, planes, etc. But remember, it's, it's double almost what it would otherwise be. But what's really bad about this is it's what they're doing is the Democrats want a bunch of stuff that Republicans could never get away with. So they are going to take out from the next giant bill, the three and a half trillion dollar bill that they're going to cram down. They're going to take out anything that Republicans can get away with signing off on. So the Republicans are going to give them cover on this stuff. So the Republicans are like, okay, this is horse trading. We do that. Uh, so that way it doesn't have to be a four and a half trillion dollar deal that the Democrats absolutely cram down through reconciliation. It's, in my opinion, it's totally unconstitutional. It is not the legislative process that was meant to bring down a bill that's three and a half trillion dollars. But so the next one's going to be that. And just this is. I don't know if people are really thinking about it, uh, but there are 211 Republicans in Congress. There are 220 Democrats in Congress. 50-50 is the Senate, of course. The way it works is you get a you know simple majority in Congress. It gets to the Senate. For the Senate to vote on it, it has to have a supermajority, which is 60, which is what actually happened, basically. Um, and then... The Senate, though, after it comes to a vote, only needs a 50-50 vote. And I'm thinking to the extent that Garland's can gets kicked and he doesn't get satisfaction on examining those ballots because the George ballots in just my guess is that if you really did investigate all the fraud in Georgia, Ossoff would not be senator. The, the um, what's his face? Purdue would be senator. 
And that would mean there would be 51. But I don't think they would go back and overturn the laws that were passed under these circumstances. So to the extent the Republicans are allowing this thing to go forward and not just sitting on it and delaying this process and ushering in that three and a half trillion dollar thing, which has to get passed before any change in Senate composition. It's, of course, just the fake opposition. The GOP is just absolute fake opposition. And then I have a, a correction on yesterday and then we can move on. So yesterday I said, I think I said that Biles, the gymnast who sat out of the Olympics, was doing something I think maybe Muhammad Ali did. And my son, who's a fan of Muhammad Ali, and I, I've always been a fan of Muhammad Ali, he, he is like, Mom, how could you say that? He did win the gold. And, uh, and I, then I realized, I was like, oh, of course, he did win the gold. In 1960, he won the gold for the light heavyweight championship. In, ni- in 1964, was his uh, he won the heavyweight championship against Sonny Liston, where there's that famous picture of him looking down at the at the boxer on the ground. And he's saying, get up. He's saying, get up, because obviously Sonny Liston took a dive. I mentioned that yesterday. I read a great book called The Devil and Sonny Liston. I really enjoyed that by, I think, Nick Toshis, who also wrote a good biography of Dean Martin, Living High in the Dirty World of Dreams. You just tell by the title. This guy's a good writer. So, uh, so... Anyway, he then was a conscientious objector in 66. His conviction on that was overturned in 71, but he already lost a lot of years boxing. Now, my contention is that he may have his his image as the greatest of all time as a boxer may have been promoted above the reality because he was to be and maybe was in himself a, a cultural icon. So that was promoted and he was perfect for it. I was thinking the same thing for Biles, but there may be an economic reason that she did this. I didn't realize this, but she has a tour launching. I think it's not out yet, but it's coming soon. You can buy tickets to it called Gold Over America. So there's a show that she's going to be a part of that's called Gold Over America. And that really wouldn't work if she didn't win the gold. You know, she silvered. Right. So. So I don't, you know, I really don't know what's going on here, but it just doesn't seem quite right to me. You look into it yourself, draw your own conclusions, but I, I wanted to make sure I corrected the I wonder what the, the show is about. I bet it relates to mental health. <laughs> I think it's a gymnastics performance. I know, but I bet that it centers around mental health in, in a similar way that that Harry and Megan have this show that they talk and interview these celebrities about no, their I lives and stuff, but it really focuses in on the mental health that enables them to, to do their stuff and to stand. I, I bet it does. I think it's the it's, mat work. I think it's a performance. I'm not sure there's a lot of talking. I'm making a prediction that mental health will be a through line of whatever show oh, that this is. Anything she ever does is going to have that, I think. Yes, because I saw I an article from the World Health Organization that focused in on her mental health thing and how it's going to impact the world of, of sports moving forward. And Got I think it. her show would be a perfect platform for that. I also saw a, a debunk on Snopes. They came out and they said recontextualizing the 1996 or whatever the Olympics were where the gymnast who hurt her ankle, I can't remember her name offhand, 
The girl who had the sprained ankle and she famously flipped around and nailed the landing and they won the gold. Carrie Shrug, maybe. And it was just heroic. You don't remember, Carrie? You don't remember this? It's one of the I, I remember the story, but I don't know the name. It's one of the most iconic moments in Olympic history. Now, I don't know if she's why they won the gold. I really don't remember. So maybe Snopes is right. That's an odd thing for me to say. But the whole idea of the article is no, no, no. She did not do her athletic event injured and win the gold for for her country. So you can't say that uh, this girl Biles lost the gold for America. So they're going out of their way to kind of defend Biles. By it's just it's strange the coordinated effort going on right now about that. So we talked about data and the psychological experiment going on right now. And I saw an article that is a perfect example of the type of data that they are collecting right now during the pandemic. This is from the New York Times. The article is titled, The Pandemic Changed How We Spent Our Time. Obviously. Duh. (laughs) By force. Yeah, exactly. So here is some of the takeaways from this article. People spent last year an hour and a half less on average with people outside of their household. So we spent an hour and a half less with people who we do not live with. For people who didn't live with anyone else, this meant they spent more than 20 hours a day either asleep or alone on average. So there's one little, there's one little data psychological point you can find out about people who are alone and how you can maybe affect them. And then they go on to young people. Young people, especially teenagers, saw the biggest shift in their social lives. Teenagers 15 to 19 spent six hours a day alone, up from four and a half hours a day in 2019. So that's that's an interesting. I remember David Crow was talking about that when we talked to him in April of 2020. He said he lived alone and this was hard for him. Yeah, and I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. And they can use this data to target their propaganda, to target their advertising. Like, Look how specific this next piece of data is. Young people were also the only group to spend more time on personal grooming in 2020 and the only group to spend less time working out. That's a very specific Who? Who? young people between 15 and 19. Male so and female between 15 and 19 spend more time primping for the camera. Yes. But not for the beach. Yes, that's a great way to put it. And that is very interesting data to collect that you can use in this psychological profiling that you're collecting. The most interesting aspect of it that they, they collect the data on was this. And this is this is from the same group that collects the census data, by the way. And I can tell you how they collect the data in a second. It's pretty interesting. The biggest change for parents. So they're talking about the change for parents raising children. Secondary child care. So we see the American Families Plan. We see the cradle to career stuff with the infrastructure stuff. The biggest changes in the amount was in the amount of time parents spent watching their children while juggling other tasks. So they they did this where it's like, are you cooking while also watching your kids? Stuff like that. This and, has, I mean, that's been my experience. Like my, I used mm-hmm. to have help. I have a special needs child, and I mean, it was weird because she took vacation immediately all of our vacation through the end of the year. And I, you know, I'm not dissing but I never saw her again. I've yeah, never they seen call, her that's again. what and they are calling secondary child care is that. It's really hard because my son has special needs and the other kids are home too. Like it's been yeah. really crazy, but I actually like it better. It's harder, but I like it better because I really feel like doing those tasks are really important for like, that's what parenting is. It's a lot of it is just being there is just feeding them is just being in the kitchen. They talk to you while you're doing the dishes, whatever. 
Yeah, well, parents spent six hours a day on that secondary child care, up an hour and 20 minutes from 2019. So that, that's a pretty good chunk of time. And they said that women bore the brunt of this burden. They said they spent seven hours a day on secondary child care versus five hours for men and eight hours on overall child care. And this is leading to the way that they're talking about this. This is leading to better give your kids to Mama Kamala. Because wow, the- that's crazy. Because for me, like, okay, maybe the women increased the number of minutes more, but men probably doubled the amount of time. My husband, I we hate to say anything good came out of this, but his engagement with the kids and even in those little ways just went through the roof. And everybody has been very happy with that. Now he's going back now, but... Uh, that has been actually a really good thing. And I wouldn't even have somebody I wouldn't even get a, a ba- like I won't even hire somebody to come over like they used to, much less push the kids out to, to child care. Well, they target single moms when it comes to the child care. They, they say conclude by saying the single moms were hit the hardest and unmarried women with elementary school age children were at home nearly three extra hours a day with child care. And that was a lot more than unmarried men spent. And then it contextualizes it with this. They need help. They need extra care coming in, and it fits perfectly. This is the type of data that can be used in a Biden pitch for the American Families Plan. And it wouldn't surprise me to hear this exact data point spoken, and it talks about who can use this data, and they're talking about policymakers, they're talking about journalists, they're talking about think tanks using it. And the way they collected the data, the most interesting part of it is they asked people who were involved in the studies, the Census Bureau uh, interviewers, they have people spend 24 hours documenting every single thing that they do, every detail, including the activities they do and the people who are in the room with them when they conduct the activities, which I think that could get a little personal and a little interesting at the same time. But can you imagine if you actually did that, what you'd be telling people? People are writing this down? Yes. Every, what, 15 minutes or at the end of the day? There's that, no, they want them to continuously track it through a 24 hour period. So probably every 15 minutes is what right. I gather. Yeah. Because that's actually disruptive. It's like what I think of as quantum, like where the observer affects the observed. Definitely. It's either disruptive, in which case it's inaccurate or it's inaccurate because it's later and not disruptive. However, I'm not I'm not saying that that, that isn't basically correct, but it's just a ra- sloppy. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh take it to the bank you know, like i wouldn't i wouldn't swear that was true on a statistical basis i believe that they use phone data as well from now that that is i think accurate and does not enter into the i mean you can manipulate it if you wanted to on purpose but see this stuff isn't just put out there for nothing this is behavioral effects that they're using for policy for research based on this pandemic and they're collecting all kind of data like this and actually i have in the patron 15 a story that sounds like it would dovetail with that and i'm going to talk about it It has to do with um, mental health demographics but i believe that the study was actually done before covid yet the headline kind of you know is feels very covidian i'll tell you about that in the patron 15 i there was a story i just wanted to bring to your attention because i thought it'd be interesting to you that the SEC, which regulates the like stock and um, bond 
trading and their um, regulatory disclosures and all of that. They want it's the headline is SEC mulls climate change risks in 10 Ks, which is their reporting documents. And what in the World Street Journal article did not get into it was kind of confusing because what it did not say is that what they're looking for is specific standard regulatory reporting. And if you go beyond the Wall Street Journal, you can find that it's ESG, that it affects anything that claims to be sustainable or green, like very acutely. It's very obviously the World Economic Forum thing trying to get ESG standards to be regulatory requirements. And they said it would uh, talk about um, greenhouse gas emissions, plans for managing risks. They went on to say it would be quantitative reporting, including financial impact of climate change, progress towards climate goals. He made this, the uh, SEC chair made this announcement at a UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment event, and it said they would even consider covering how executives manage climate risks and opportunities and how climate change factors into a company's business strategy which I assume that that would all be, I've worked on documents like that. Most of it is a reflection of anticipated regulation. So it's not like, well, the earth is getting hotter, so it's going to cost more to keep my ice cream frozen. It's, the government says the earth is getting hotter and they're going to make regulations that make refrigeration more expensive. Like that's what I've always seen that stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if that continues to do it. And I wanted to just ask you if you saw in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, the, the legit bat sent me a text of this where you can see the opening ceremony is like a circle with colored boxes behind them. And it is the UN agenda 2030 sustainability (laughs) symbol. They have like lapel pins like that. My kids are like, Oh yeah, that's all over my school. Like they have posters with that symbol. So everybody recognizes that I wouldn't have, but anyway, so it's all coming together. Yeah. They like to do that. They like to have those symbols everywhere during these world worldly events or national events in America anyway. And it means something because it's this color coded wheel of like different sustainability goals that reminded me of the World Economic World, uh, Great Reset wheel. But it's on the U.N. website and these the colors actually match. It's definitely supposed to be the same thing. I was reading about a color coded interactive wheel of sorts. The CDC has a color-coded interactive map. I don't know how long they've had this. It seems like a new thing the way it was presented. I did go look at it, but I saw this in the AJC. The website features a color-coded interactive map that shows different levels of community COVID-19 transmission. In the color-coded map, orange reflects substantial community transmission and red indicates high transmission. So I went over there to look at the map and you can see the zoomed out map Kind of like you might see a map of, if you're looking for directions, you can see the entire United States at first, and you can see the different colors. Of course, in the South, where all the redneck Republicans are, is really red, where high transmission, and the colors are lighter once you go up north, of course. And then you can zoom in down to the county level. So you can get all the way down to the county level and see what color your county is, see what the transmission is. I'm wondering how they've got all this data. Obviously, their contact tracing efforts are contributing to this. But I'm wondering how much further they can actually go with this if they really wanted to. Is this a Google map type technology where I can zoom in on my actual house and see the cars in the driveway? Can I zoom into my driveway and and see where the spread is in my garage so I know what parts of the garage to stay out of? (laughs) How close can they get with this technology? This This seems kind of... 
you know, helpful and nonchalant. But really, this is uh, an all-seeing eye zooming in on what they're saying high transmission levels are. And this is actually a way to say, look at these dangerous, scary places. Maybe we should quarantine them off when you put something, a bright color, kind of alert red on a map. And they act like the information is correct. So right. they act like it's based on something real. I got a, I've retweeted this, but boy, it's a slog. But you have to, uh, I, I mean, if you took the time, you could understand it, how they changed the VAERS reporting to where basically patterns cannot emerge. Even if you, everybody, it's like the, they do with like, I don't know if it's, it's a log scale, like something crazy. You have to really read the article I tweeted at Monica Perez show, but it just shows you this data that then they make visual for you to understand. It is, it's like beyond damn statistics. And that is why that they have a movement against what they call disinformation, where people take data that is produced by the government and they uh, put it in in visualized, visualizable ways, the way Etienne de la Boetie Squared does. And that is so powerful that they're worried that they can take real data and make real charts that have visual impact in a way they don't want it to. Like that, they, capital T, whatever. So That's I can, interesting. This is Ever dangerous. since you brought up the point a couple days ago about how the pharmaceutical companies are making billions of dollars off of this, yet they are accusing the, quote, disinformation dozen <laughs> of becoming millionaires off of what they're telling when the pharmaceutical companies are becoming mega billionaires off of it. It's just oh, absurd. That was last week. This week, today, actually, today, in today's Wall Street Journal, Pfizer said they raised their estimate of COVID-19 vaccine sales by 29%. 29%. And I'll, I'll give you, that's tens of billions of dollars. Um, or at least $10 billion. And the reason, uh, well, I, it didn't say the reason. There was a very screwy article in the journal about this, which said, it actually said the headline of uh, a separate article from that one, Pfizer Vax protection still strong after six months. And if you go and read this short little article, it talks about how it declines over six months. And it says it's on average 91% over six months, but that's not what the headline, the headline was saying what it was like at six months and average over six months with a declining rate is not what they were saying. And so they, on the one hand, they're saying Pfizer is great, but on the other hand, even in that article, it says that Pfizer has a it says that Pfizer has a wants to promote a third dose. And that could be why it's going up by a third. I mean, or it could go up by 50 percent if everybody got a third dose. But if, if if not, everybody gets a third dose. I mean, that alone could account for it. It's interesting the way they see these conversations. I noticed this a few months ago when they first started bringing up the third dose Pfizer thing. And then people yeah. were saying, no, no evidence. We need a third dose yet. But I was like, I think that's just the beginning of the conversation. A few months down the road, it's going to be maybe we do need that third dose because the others wear off and everybody can line their pockets in the meantime. Yes, yeah, could be. So Netflix is requiring vaccinations for actors. They're going further than what the what Hollywood is going. Hollywood sent out a letter where they're saying, 
you can implement the mandatory vaccine policies for cast and crew on a production by production basis. Netflix is going further and saying that we are doing mandatory vaccines for all cast of all of its U.S. productions. U.S. productions. I find that interesting that it's just it's U.S. productions. So I presume there will be some out of country productions going on. So as well as those who come into contact with people on set. Now, this is this is interesting. This is another example to me of the corporations or the companies taking the, these effort to do the mandate so that the government, so to speak, doesn't have to do it. I'm presenting Hollywood as the government here and Netflix as the corporation within that Hollywood government saying they're not going to mandate it, but we will mandate it. And then it goes even further. Sean Penn, you know, Sean Penn is always ready to virtue signal. He is not coming back to the set of his new movie unless the vaccines are required for everybody and he's offering up his very own nonprofit to get everybody on set vaccinated. He's doing this because he believes that Hollywood has not gone far enough, so it's up to the individual productions to do it themselves. And I'm wondering if this is going to rope in with a new vaccine incentive. Get vaccinated by your favorite Hollywood star. Come on down to set and Sean Penn himself will vaccinate you. I think that would work. You know how they do the car washes with bikinis? You get the bikini vaccination site. You're going to draw in some more people. That would definitely be an incentive. And it would also be an incentive like what's happening out here like crazy in this state and in this country is that a lot of employers now, or I should say some really big employers are requiring the vaccination. Google, Facebook are requiring vaccinations for on-campus workers. And they also announced that Google plans to return to offices in mid-October, which is kind of pushed back. And of course, they're saying it's because of the new surge, but I think it's because if they bring down a vaccination mandate, nobody's going to, the people will quit in droves. I mean, we're talking if, if it's Google and Facebook and beyond, it's hundreds of thousands of people. And I, you know, I, I don't know hundred percent why they're doing it. I obviously they want to promote the vaccine. Maybe they actually want another excuse to, to make people work from home. I mean, the real estate savings alone would be huge. That is starting in the U S but they say it's going to keep pushing out. They're talking about October. October, it, what Brian Festa said on the last Union of the Unwanted is that he thinks the FDA approval is going to come down by Labor Day. Like, that's pretty, pretty scary. And uh, it said the the Pachai, the guy who runs, that's the Google guy, right? I think Pachai is the Google guy. He said getting vaccinated is one of the most important ways to keep ourselves and our communities healthy in the months ahead. Of course, I actually disagree with that from a factual basis. The Salesforce guy, our favorite World Economic Forum, Shill, said uh, vaccinated employees who voluntarily share their status would be allowed to be back in the San Francisco office up to like in groups of 100 at a time. And my favorite is that the Gulf Coast Bank and Trust in Louisiana doesn't feel like they want to take the risk of liability of uh, mandating the vaccine. And then as a footnote, it's like, and they don't think it's their place as a private company, but they are emphasizing to their their employees, they want to focus on a political solution, which is they are going to tell people that, you know, for Republicans, that Trump, that Trump is uh, the one who introduced the vaccines in the first place and Biden is the one who's really pushing it. Uh, Okay, so before we get to the last story of the free 30, I am going to which is going to be. Uh, You thought the Tuskegee study shocked the conscience. 
Ever hear what they did in Guatemala? And in the patron 15, I want to tell you about that. You know what I call the suicide demographic? Well, there's also a mental illness demo. I will tell you all about that. And the greatest story ever. And it's coming out of a trailer park in Louisiana. I have got to hear this. Don't want to miss that story. (laughs) Okay. So, um, but before we get to all that, a big thanks to the sponsor of today's show. It is our friend Etienne Leboetzi squared at government-scam.com slash Monica, where he is offering the everything bundle for $100, where you get a copy of government, the biggest scam in history exposed. That is the coffee table book that I love so much and our listeners have loved. It's the where you the ideas buy five of those and hand them to people or just leave them on your coffee table or whatever. Uh, and then people will just it's made for visual learners, like we were talking about earlier in the show. It gets people from zero to sixty red pilled in like an hour. It also comes with a flash drive and the resources on the website, of course, which include upcoming events, calls to action. In the Everything Bundle, you also get Larkin Rose's The Most Dangerous Superstition. I love that book. It's about how we think that government is a necessity, but that's just a superstition and it really breaks it down item by item. It's excellent. What Anarchy Isn't. I love that book. It's very small. You can give that to a teen. It's got little funny drawings in it. It's I really like that one. Sedition, Subversion, and Sabotage by Ben Stone. And now a children's book that I really like. It's short. It's sweet. It has the right message. It's called Three Friends Free. And Propaganda Report listeners can get 10% off at government-scam.com slash Monica. So please support us by supporting our sponsors including government-scam.com and also support us by supporting us. And you can do that. You don't have to do it with money. You can do it with time and uh, just spreading the word. So if you subscribe to us on all of your platforms, follow us on social media or get us a, I'm at Monica Perez show on Twitter. Binkley is at Freedom Max Radio on Twitter. Get us a shout out on your next favorite podcast and let us know what it is. And most important, please leave us a review. Give us a review on across podcasting platforms, a five-star review that gets us up in the searches and that gets the word out. So thank you very much for that. And uh, on to the last story of the Free 30. Okay, this story is not for the faint of heart. There are some details in it that are truly disturbing. We're being told right now to trust the government and the media unquestionably. And that if you don't, you're a conspiracy theorist and you're dangerous. And that's an absurd proposition. To me, it's like trusting an addict. If you always give an addict the benefit of doubt, then you will be wrong most of the time. I'm talking about somebody who has not recovered. You're going to be wrong most of the time. And that's true with the media as well, because addicts lie and oftentimes convincingly, just like governments, just like the media, that's their standard. That's their mode of operation. So when the standard is to lie, you must assume that even when they are convincing, they are lying. And it is up to them to prove without a doubt that they are telling the truth. That is how it really should be when the history and standard is one of lying. I'm going to give you an example that supports what I'm saying here. So you've heard of the Tuskegee experiments, like you said, which they're downplaying right now to try and overcome hesitancy. They're downplaying it by saying that the doctors didn't actually infect subjects with syphilis. No, they did not. They just spent 40 years preventing people who had syphilis that they identified from actually getting treated and lying to them. So the same doctors, same institutions were involved in another experiment 
This one called the Guatemala syphilis experiments. This is an experiment in which in 2010, the United States government acknowledged its role in and Barack Obama formally apologized to Guatemala for the ethical violations that took place. So this is not a conspiracy. And when I tell you at the end who is still currently tied up in a lawsuit related to this experiment, your jaw is going to drop. So what are the Guatemala syphilis experiments? The Guatemala syphilis experiments were United States-led human experiments that were funded by the U.S. National Institute, and they were conducted in Guatemala between 1946 and 1948. During the experiments, the U.S. government engaged in research in which more than 5,000 Guatemalans were intentionally infected, intentionally infected with STDs like syphilis and gonorrhea. The subjects involved in the study ranged in age from as old as 72 years old to as young as 10 years old. Intentionally infected with syphilis as young as 10 years old. That's unconscionable. Those infected were orphans, prostitutes, mental patients, soldiers, and prisoners, the most vulnerable in society. It it reminds me of the research that Liam Sheff did. You can read about it in his book, Official Stories, where they took orphanages in the Bronx and gave babies AZT, assume, you know, tested them for HIV babies who died. It, yes, this is and it was orphans most- and black kids like it was definitely experimenting on the weakest. It's so sick. It's terrible. It's predatory. It's it's horrific too. like I've, I've scratched the surface of this and it's really hard to even get through it. How horrifying it is. Eighty three people, at least 83 people died from the experimentations. Now, how did they deliberately infect people? There's a couple of ways that I've found so far. One is the doctors de- deliberately infected healthy people with the diseases by paying infected prostitutes that had syphilis to have sex with as many soldiers and prisoners as possible back to back to back to back in order to ensure that the infection spread. That's one way. Another way is they just inoculated them. They just inoculated them with the bacterium. I'm going to give you a pretty disturbing case account that was written up in a report. And this is a report that was published by the United States government in 2011. So, if we're if we're publishing it, then it probably doesn't even scratch the surface. And this is this is pretty it's pretty tough right here. It's a case example. Berta was a female patient in a psychiatric hospital in February 1948. That same year, she was injected in her left arm with syphilis. A month later, she developed scabies. Several weeks later, Dr. Cutler, and this Dr. Cutler was also central to the Tuskegee experiments. Dr. Cutler noted that she also developed red bumps where he had injected her arm, lesions on her arm and legs, and her skin was beginning to waste away from her body. Berta was not treated for syphilis until three months after her injection. Soon after, on August 23rd, Dr. Cutler wrote that Berta appeared as if she was going to die, but he did not specify why. That same day, he put gonorrheal pus from another male subject into both of Berta's eyes, as well as in her urethra and rectum. He also reinfected her with syphilis. Several days later, Berta's eyes were filled with with pus from the gonorrhea. She was bleeding. Three days later, she died. This was published in a U.S. report about a U.S.-led project. This was 2011 that the report was published. And And why is it popping up now again? It's not. I found it when I was researching Tuskegee. And this is where, I mean, that's horrifying. Get this. So the U.S. government was sued after this came out, right? So we were sued and it was determined, and this is in 2011, that the U.S. government has immunity from liability 
for actions committed outside the U.S. So because the actions were committed outside the U.S., well, that is what I was thinking was happening in a cover. Remember, I brought that up, like why they were doing it in the Wuhan lab and something else they were doing in like Australia or whatever. And I thought maybe they do that because they have different rules outside the U.S. This that's is an exactly that. why they did it. I found some of the correspondence between the doctors. It's Dr. Cutler. And that's why they moved these experiments, which, which they did start them in prisons here. And they moved them over there. And the the letters the doctors wrote to each other emphasized we can't tell people what we're doing. We have to keep as few people in the know as possible. We have to, they lied to the uh, Guatemalan government who they roped into helping them without them fully knowing what they were doing. And there's other lawsuits, however. And this is the most kind of shocking part. Well, not what I just read is the most shocking part. But connecting this to right now, there's lawsuits against non-governmental organizations because some of the doctors involved in the experiments were head doctors at – Johns Hopkins University. Figures. So nearly 800 former research subjects and their families filed a billion-dollar lawsuit against John Hopkins University, blaming the institution for its role in the 1940s government experiments in Guatemala that infected hundreds with syphilis, gonorrhea, and other sexually transmitted diseases. The lawsuit seeks to, seeks to hold Hopkins responsible for the experiments because its doctors held key roles on panels that reviewed and approved federal spending on the experiments. Also listed in the suit are the Rockefeller Foundation and the drug maker Bristol Myers Squibb as defendants. And that was in 2015. Now, as recent as 2019, January in 2019, a United States federal judge stated that John Hopkins University, Bristol Myers, and the Rockefeller Foundation must face a $1 billion lawsuit for the roles in this experiment. And as recent as August of 2019, a motion to dismiss by the defendants, the Rockefeller Foundation and Johns Hopkins, was denied. So, here's what we have. Here's the situation. We have the university that was at the center of event 201 that is being presented to us as the ultimate authoritative source for this pandemic, that university is currently still tied up in a lawsuit seeking billions of dollars for the role they played in intentionally infecting hundreds of Guatemalans with syphilis. That's our authoritative source that we're being told to trust unquestionably. Should we trust them? Should we trust the media? Absolutely not. When the standard is to lie, the liars must prove without a doubt that they are for once telling the truth. So this BS that we should trust them without a doubt is ridiculous. It is. It's like Johnson and Johnson. I mean, who would you? They're telling us to trust them and they have a history of hurting people. It's really uh, people should do their homework on the institutions that get the imprimatur from the powers that be. I just it's shocking. So um, I do want to I have a quick shout out. I want to shout out uh, Ism Kant. Because when I announced that, I don't, people might not have heard this because I only, I think I only told patrons. So we, we're changing our patron tiers a little bit. So we're going to go to one DPP, Disappearing Patron Party a month, and one Zoom party a month instead of two DPPs and the occasional Zoom party. But Ismkant said that he would continue to conduct the patron parties on Discord. So he set up a URL called DPP Discord, DPPDISCORD.com. All you have to do is register for Discord and go there. And that's where you find Propaganda Report people hanging out. And uh, so I thank him for that. He's going to make sure that he's there. There's a party going every for every single Friday afternoon. So I appreciate that. And uh, I think that's it. We will. I do want to tell people if they want to, if there is an event they want to go to and wear a Propaganda Report shirt so that people can find them and we can make real connections, let's do it. I got a, a, 
a message from Bill, our friend Bill from Neighbors. I guess, is there farmer's market every Saturday? It wasn't crystal clear to me, but I think he wanted to encourage people to make their connections at Neighbors at the farmer's market. And so you can find that. I think it's neighborsfeedandseed.com. Yeah. So check that out. And uh, with that, on to the patron 15. All right. You guys can find your drive time news blast every weekday afternoon at thepropreport.com or your favorite podcasting platform with a propaganda report podcast feed. If you want access to the extra content that we post every time we post a DNB, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and join up there. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic weekend. Check out our merchandise at propreport.com at the merchandise link and showcase your propaganda report shirt we will feature it if we get those pictures thank you for listening have a fantastic rest of your day